We continue this morning our study of the Gospel of John. We're still in chapter 12. John chapter 12 sits in a a transitional place in the flow of the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. We've been in our study of John for some time. This, This chapter 12 gets us from the the climactic one of the seven signs. We've spoken repeatedly that, that this earlier part of John's gospel is organized around seven signpost miracles. The word that John typically uses to describe these miracles is the word sign. And it's exactly the same word that a uh, first century Greek writer, even in secular literature, would use to indicate a directional sign. A, a this way to type sign. And these signpost miracles are designed to point people to the reality of Jesus the Messiah. And in chapter 11, the, the largest event in that chapter is the seventh of those signpost miracles, the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. And so we've had that event. That event whipped up opposition to Jesus among the religious leaders of that time and place. And we'll see a little bit more of that in the passage at hand this morning. Chapter 12 deals with the time sort of from from what is typically called the triumphal entry and then through the events of that last week of Jesus' public ministry. On Friday, he's going to go to the cross. And much of what is just ahead in the Gospel of John deals with that last night before he goes to the cross. That that same Thursday night where he inaugurated the Lord's Supper. Ironically, John, who, who was present at that supper, writes very little about that, if anything, in his account of that last night. And we'll be in that last night for some weeks because it encompasses Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and into 18. But we're not there yet. John in chapter 12 is taking various moments and various events from the last few days of Jesus' public ministry between the triumphal entry and Thursday night. And here we have in verses 17 through 26 a a, a sequence of, of things that we'll talk about. I've chosen for my title this morning, The Hour Has Come. I believe my reasons for doing so will become evident as we work our way through this text. I'm not gonna read the text at one big clip. We'll take it as we go through. It is the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 17 through 26. The hour has come. Roman numeral one, if you're following on the outline, and remember these printed outlines are available as you come into the worship center. They also are available digitally if you uh, want to go online and download the PDF or link to it in whatever sort of uh, browser-based tool you're using to follow. Roman numeral one, the sign. The sign, verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, 
the world has gone after him. All right, letter A on your outline, the, the, the sign, the raising of Lazarus did build Jesus' reputation. In fact, here's a, here's a riddle for you. What does the raising of Lazarus have in common with a corduroy pillow? They both make headlines. Now, some of you are going to need two conversations and lunchtime before you figure out what I just did. And some of you are going to need far longer to forgive me for it. Um, they built his reputation. You, you see that, that this, this crowd of people um, is, is following him. But it is interesting to note that while, while this sign did draw a crowd, even a crowd that was somewhat excited about the sign, and we see this with all seven of the signs. While they no doubt pointed to one who could do things that only he could do. While they no doubt were signposts saying this way to the Messiah, this way to the Savior. The miracles themselves had no direct evangelistic impact. Nobody was saved simply by observing the miracle. Miracle without gospel explanation does not call people to turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith. They point to one who is and does things which only he is and only he can do. But this crowd is, is tracking, and I know the verse even says they're bearing witness, but what they're bearing witness to is the miraculous event, not the gospel. The next verse makes it clear. They went to meet him because they heard he had done the sign. Now that's important because in our day, there are innumerable self-identified miracle workers who would build statistically impressive ministries around their supposed miraculous capabilities. But generally are pretty mushy on the gospel pretty mushy on calling men and women to turn from their sins, repenting and trusting Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of his work on the cross alone in order that they would be saved for eternity. And miracle without message is meaningless. Miracle with the wrong message is harmful. And even here, even in the ministry of Jesus himself, his reputation is increased by the miracle, but we do not see widespread evangelistic impact from the miracle. It built his reputation. Second thing it did is it, it solidified the Pharisees' rejection. 
See, the, the Pharisees were very protective of their status quo. Yes, the, the Roman Empire was in a position of governmental oversight. The Roman province of Judah, what you and I would desire to call the nation of Israel, but again, it is a province of the Roman Empire, and the Romans are no doubt large and in charge, but in terms of local matters and religious matters, there is a status quo that is maintained with power focused in these elite Jewish religious leaders. And now along has come one whose message is, is not that you are right with God by behaving the laws and traditions proposed by the Pharisees, but that you are right with God on the basis of his grace transforming your heart and the faith response. The status quo stands to be materially disrupted. And so these Pharisees see Jesus not as salvation, but as competition. What can we do with that today? Salvation by grace through faith is offered as a free gift. But in receiving that gift, you admit some fairly unpleasant things about yourself and you give up something that you might value pretty highly. What you have to admit is that you need a savior. That you're not okay. And certainly you're not going to be eternally okay when you stand before an absolutely holy and absolutely just God. What you have to give up is your own personal in-chargeness. We who are saved by Jesus, we'll see it later in this very paragraph, we must follow Jesus or we're not saved. And human beings generally don't like the idea of following the Lord. We are a rebellious and self-willed lot. And for those of you who are outside of Christ, you might see Jesus' offer of salvation, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of competition for your own self-mastery, which has to go should you come to faith in Christ? Well, I, it's interesting how, how, how squirrely and, and nervous the Pharisees are getting. You can see them turning on each other. I love the wording. They said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. And they're all telling each other what a bunch of lack of success you are having. Bit of a mess. Roman numeral two, the seekers. The seekers. Now, it's important when we speak of, of seekers, whether, whether in Scripture interpretation or whether in our, our present era. Romans 3.10 could not state it more plainly. There is none who seeks after God. They're not looking for, for the Lord as he is. My, my long ago pastor, friend, and mentor, Adrian Rogers, said lost people are seeking Jesus like bank robbers are seeking FBI agents. 
But the book of Ecclesiastes says, the Lord has hidden eternity in the hearts of every person. The Lord has hidden eternity in our heart. And that internalized knowledge that there are eternal realities, that eternity, something much larger than ourselves, looms beyond us and requires some response since humankind seeking all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. <clears throat> it is Jesus who seeks us for salvation. And here, these seekers are coming to Jesus with questions. They don't even know all of what they're looking for. But let's look at some characteristics of them. Verses 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So things I want you to see about these guys. Letter A, they were outsiders. They were outsiders. That is, they, they were of Greek ethnicity. They were of Gentile ethnicity. And yet they found themselves in Jerusalem at Passover time. Now, perhaps they were in process of converting to Judaism. They certainly must have been interested in something they had heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose, whose major celebration, Passover, was, was happening that week in Jerusalem. But they were fundamentally outsiders. They would, have, they would have stood out in Jerusalem. They would have very much given off a, we ain't from around here vibe. Tell, tell me again what, what, what we're supposed to do here, how we're supposed to be here, what's going on here. They were outsiders. Letter B, because they were outsiders, they do what every outsider does. Every, it, it, it's baked into human nature that when you are an outsider and you come to a place where there's a, a bunch of people who are insiders, you look for a friend. You look for some person who will help you connect. It's interesting that among the 12 disciples of Jesus, Philip and Andrew have Gentile names. Now they were Jewish, but there was something in their background. Maybe the fact that John tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida, which was a, a Jewish city, but near a Gentile region. Philip in his naming, perhaps something in his mannerisms, maybe in his conversation, something about his language or his accent, told these, these Greeks, that guy over there, maybe that guy over there could be somebody who's at least a little bit like us. Somebody we could talk to. They were outsiders, so letter B, they looked for a friend. And then letter C, those disciples, Philip and Andrew, brought them to Jesus. Now I know that the text of the Gospel of John says they went and told Jesus and that's all we can say with certainty. But it doesn't take much sanctified imagination to see, to figure, 
to conclude that Jesus would have said, I can't wait to meet them, bring them to me, or let me go to them. At any rate, Philip and Andrew served a, a vital sort of connecting role. You know, it's, it's not hard to apply this paragraph. Let me just, let's just have a moment of sort of family chat here at McGregor Baptist. We desire to be, and largely we are, a quite welcoming place. But let's tell each other the truth. In terms of facilities layout, Some evil architect somewhere decided to create the most confusing church campus in the history of the kingdom of God. And here we are on it. Our, nothing about our architecture says welcome. We have this great big funny space mountain looking building that we're sitting inside with its tiny little entrance foyer that's more interested in hospitality to the koi fish than to the people. We put our preschoolers way over there, our children way over there, our students way back in the back. And I'm not knocking it, it's what we've got. And, and the good news is we use it well, but you've got to agree with me, this campus I've worked on this campus for 20 years and I am very convinced that there are whole corridors I've never visited. I don't even know how to find them. But we have, we have an incredible, not-so-secret weapon. When we gather as the body of Christ on Sunday mornings, we have a, a, a group of people that are called the First Impression Ministry. If you serve as a part of the First Impression Ministry and you're able to be in the worship center at this hour, I wish you'd raise your hand. Where are people who serve on the First Impression Ministry? There are a few in every service. Okay, not many in this one. All right, let me, let me, let me recast the question. Look at this passage. Outsiders came. And you can just tell. They... They might look a little different. Part of how they look is, huh, where? Okay, how do I find out where you hid the bathrooms? Hurry, please. Why are the, the large and most accessible parking lots nowhere near the worship center? How do I find my way into that building? And I know we've got some signage and stuff, but do you remember what it was like to be new on this campus? You can spot them. And if you're already quite comfortable on this campus, maybe like me, you've been around here for some years and you've kind of gotten used to it. And so terms like the faith building, the hope building make sense to you because you've been navigating them for a while. If you know your way around, I hope you're looking out for those who don't. If you've been around long enough to have geographical familiarity with the campus, let alone relational familiarity with the Savior, I hope when you see someone approaching a door, I hope you're the one that opens it and holds it. When you see someone 
walking about like they're looking for a friend. They're asking the question, as these Gentiles asked the question that led them to Philip and Andrew, the most Gentile appearing of Jesus' apostles. You know, the question they're asking is, is there anybody here like me, or at least is there anybody here who'll like me? I hope when you're dressing on Sunday morning, You're saying, Lord, I'm not going to church mostly today to be served. I'm going to church mostly today to serve. And regardless of what else I'm doing, my radar will be out in case a stranger looking for a friend that makes eye contact or gets near me. Because I will play a role in getting that person to where they need to be because that's what I ought to do. Do you get that? Can you own that? Okay, so let me ask again. How many of you are, along with me, part of McGregor Baptist Church's first impression team? Yeah, it's everybody in the room, or else I didn't ask it right. If you know Jesus and you know this campus and you're comfortable and familiar here, God's going to put people who don't and who aren't near you. Be a Philip. Be an Andrew. All right, the sign, the seekers. Roman numeral three, the Savior. How does Jesus respond in this moment? Letter A. Well, first verses 23 through 26, the Savior. And Jesus answered them. And he cut right to that which matters most. The hour has come. That's where I got my title for this morning. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Some things we see in those verses. Letter A, we see the finale of his mission the finale of his mission. The hour has come. It's been, a, it's been a thread weaving through the Gospel of John up to this point. In John chapter two, verse four, he makes the statement at the wedding of Cana, my hour has not yet come. In John seven, Verses six through eight, he says, my time has not yet come. And then down in, in verse eight, for my time has not yet fully come. In John eight, as he's just made some statements about himself as the light of the world, they seek to arrest him, but they can't because John eight, verse 20, his hour had not yet come. So the reader of the Gospel of John has already been 
prompted to think in terms of, of his hour, whatever that means, his hour is not yet. And here for the first time, Jesus, Jesus turns that narrative on its head and says, now, the hour has come. This is the finale of my ministry. The cross, the place where my sacrifice will stand for sinners, it is upon me. The hour has come. So let her be the fruitfulness of his death. Using the word picture of a, of a seed planted. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If it dies, it bears much fruit. At the trial of Jesus, at the crucifixion of Jesus, there aren't but a handful. Of his original 12 disciples, only John is present at the cross. In the upper room, after the resurrection and early in the book of Acts, maybe a few more than 100. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, thousands. And through the book of Acts, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands in the first 30 years of the history of the church. And today, Christianity. The multiplication of the cross. Jesus would die on that cross, the only undeserved death in human history. Now, before you bow up, I know that there have been Death penalties where we've gotten it wrong. I know that there have been wars that history perhaps shows were ill-motivated. And I'm talking about all the way down human history. There has been any amount of senseless loss of life. I understand that. But every single human being who ever died deserved to. Perhaps the Timing was unseemly. Perhaps the manner was deplorable. But the wages of sin is death. And there is only one undeserved death in all of human history, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He didn't die because he deserved God's wrath. He died because you deserve God's wrath, and he stepped in front of it for all who will cry out to him for salvation. Now it draws upon him just days away, soon just hours away, the reality of the cross. The finale of his mission, the fruitfulness of his death, and the faith of his people. We finish with this. First, in, in love. Truly, truly, or pardon me, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 is a very precious verse. Revelation 12, 11. We are given a peek into the, the scene of heaven as the followers of Jesus Christ are beginning to realize their ultimate eternal victory. And the, the narrator of the book of Revelation 
speaks in 12.11 of believers found victorious at the end. And he says, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Here it is. For they loved not their lives even unto death. That's not saying you have to abhor every day you draw breath. It just means that the loves of this life are subordinate, inferior to the love of what Jesus has for us in the next. That we live in conscious awareness that this world is not our ultimate home. And the loves of this world, as incredible as they are and can be, are passing and transitory compared to our love for Jesus and our orientation toward where he's taking us. The faith of his people expressed in love. Second, expressed in service. If anyone serves me, verse 26, he must follow me. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you're going to identify as one who has come to faith in Christ. You must be engaged in following Jesus. Been a lot of years now, but there was a minor tempest in a teapot throughout North American Christianity because a couple of guys wrote books about the, the necessity of following Jesus. If you're going to say you know Jesus, you've got to follow Jesus. And I guess meaning to insult that viewpoint, somebody derisively labeled it lordship salvation, as though that's a bad thing, which is ironic, because when discussing lordship salvation, there is no other kind of salvation. Jesus is savior of those to whom he is lord. If he's your savior and not your lord, you don't know him. You've manufactured a cuddly version of him that you can snuggle up to to keep warm, but that won't keep you from being very, very warm in eternity. Here Jesus says, if you serve me, you've got to follow me. Two things are baked into following. Number one, you're moving. If you're standing still, you're not following anybody. Following Jesus involves growth, challenge, movement. Second, following means you're not in charge. You're not setting the pace. You're not setting the direction. You don't even know where the next turn's coming from. Oh, we're doing that now. All right, Lord. Our service for him is, is expressed in our following him. Our obedience to what he's telling us in his word. Our growth as followers of his. Our passion. To follow him as Lord. And in eternity. Where I am, there will be, my, there my servants will be also. Sounds kind of like some familiar words from John 14 where we'll be in a bit. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Oh, the, the eternal consequences of our faith. You know what? I know already this morning, because I know some of the stories, I've, I've had the privilege of speaking this morning to some people who medical diagnosis have put them under the apparent sentence of, of soon coming death. 
Maybe you, this morning, are under a medical sentence that spells unless something miraculous happens, your soon coming death. Or it may be that you're feeling a bit invulnerable this morning. Blood numbers are good, health is solid. Of course, you're planning on driving on I-75 this week. <laughs> Let me tell you something about death. Death is approaching you at the rate of one second per second. You're about an hour closer to death than you were when you walked into this room. And you have no idea how many more of those you're going to get. Maybe quite a few. Maybe you're down to single digits. I'm not an alarmist, I'm not a sensationalist, but I have seen gurneys leave this building while I'm standing right here. One second per second. Follow Jesus now. Follow Jesus now. If you want to talk about it, I'm in no hurry. I'm right here at the end of the service. You are surrounded by Phillips and Andrews who would love nothing more than to be the friend who brings you to Jesus. It's not a set of magic words. It's a heart that breaks in repentance and trusts Jesus and him alone by faith. We've talked to you about that. We'd love to. But the urgent business you must do is not with us. It's with Jesus. You've only got a finite amount of time left. Don't waste any more of it. If you know Jesus, tell yourself next Sunday while you're dressing, if you've never told yourself this before, I'm going to church today and I pray that today at church I'm going to meet somebody who's never met Jesus. I'm going to meet somebody who doesn't know their way around the facility. And I'm going to be a part of connecting somebody to that which may eventually lead to their eternal life. What a joy to be involved.